Welcome back to another Rail Talk here at Shoesmith with me, Michelle Craven Faulkner. Um, I am thrilled today to be joined by Will Rogers, who is the Managing Director of East Midlands Railways. Um, Will and I, in the interest of full disclosure, Will and I both sit on the Rail Forum Board, of which Will is also the Chair and I am the Vice Chair. But today we're very much talking to you in your role as Managing Director of East Midlands Railways, if that's all right, Will. That's absolutely fine, yeah, talking talking day job. Talking day job. I know it's nice. We don't t- normally t- get the chance to do that, do we? Um, so I suppose the, the thing we should start with doing is tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm uh, Will Rogers, Managing Director of East Midlands Railway. Uh, joined EMR in January 2020, just before COVID. Um, Good timing. It, um, if you look in terms of my career, sort of been on the railway since the early uh, 2000s. Spell of time in consultancy and a lot, most of my career really in um, railway operations and leadership. Okay, fantastic. So you, yes, you you picked the opportunity to move job at just the right time. Then did you kind of? It, 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 it was accelerated um, learning. Shall we say you, you, get, you get to know your team quite well. You get thrown a uh, crisis um, within a, a a handful of weeks of starting your job. Uh, but genuinely, sort of really found the strength of the team. Yeah, uh, really got to know people quite rapidly as you work through something like you've never worked through before. Well, and this is it. I mean, you know, I think now if you looked up in the definition of crisis in the diary, it may well have lockdown 2020. I mean, it was, uh, especially for the railway, it was a really difficult time, wasn't it? I mean, it was, um, you're still running trains to a timetable, but sometimes with nobody on it. I would imagine reliability was really good. Reliability was, was pretty good, but it, we're, we're, you're, you're, you're right that we had um, still ran a lot of services, mm. very few uh, customers and delivered a high-performing railway. But it really meant we had to find ways to keep delivering mm. around all the rules and the restrictions because it was, um, you know, the, the service doesn't stop when a, when a pandemic starts. Mm. One really caused us to think differently. Um, yeah. A lot of collaborative, good collaborative work led us to really do quite well um, over COVID. And, of course, it's, it's shaped a lot of the future that, 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 that we live in now, hasn't it? Absolutely. I think we, we see collaboration now in the industry that we have never really seen before and that was born out of covid i mean it's it's one of the successes if i can say that. I, I think it's a success or a learning of um mm. covid because when, when you're faced with a crisis and something that's i like the word wicked problems that mm-hmm. you can't you can't apply normal management methodologies mm. or techniques it's all new um and you need to respond to it very very quickly and the way you do that is by getting as many inputs as you can Mm. information as you can and that is what collaboration is all about and it's collaboration uh, all across all parts of the business from you know frontline teams management teams trade unions everybody work together mm. to keep critical services running for, for customers and we thank you all for that because it was it was it was really really good and it was really good to see how the industry really pulled together so we've we've been goodness i try and work out how long it's been since lockdown and it just feels like it's a big you know, I've got this big blank space in my memory, but we've had a couple of years now, haven't we? Have been, or a year, eighteen months, whatever it is, of being back on track. If you pardon the pun, what have the challenges been in running a railway post COVID, post lockdown? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the, the world's changed very significantly um, post COVID. Um, so I guess you know, starting with you know, where 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 we are in terms of the financials, I think is probably the, the first thing to say. So um, you know, the, the railway needs to become more sustainable now because. Mm-hmm. The, the revenue bases upon which we used to work and rely have um, have changed. Um, and there's now that significant gap between revenue and cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really makes it difficult to have a financially sustainable railway. So continuing to f- focus on things like growing revenue, 
continuing to focus on how we um, manage cost and become more efficient are really, really critical. So we reduce that taxpayer um, burden, uh, particularly at a time when there's there's lots of other challenges um, for, 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 for taxpayers. And then you combine with that other challenges around things like um, inflation. Uh, it really is a time of focus on the um, economic the sustainability of the, of, of the railway as a whole. Mm. I mean, it's a challenging time, I suppose, as well, as I would imagine that the usage of the railway has changed as well in, in that, you know, and obviously we've seen the introduction of things like flexible season tickets and things like that to account for the fact that, that commuters, commuting is slightly different to, to what it has been before, but also the increase in leisure travel as well. So your 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 split of passengers has changed, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, so, so some of the old um, norms of, of, of when a peak would be and what a peak would look like have, have changed. Um, many of the working work, working habits have changed as well. Leisure is a very, very significant part of our of our business, much more so than it than, than it used to be. And that sort of the split of uh, revenue between uh, business commuting and, and leisure has has all shifted. And days like Monday becoming one of the quieter days of the week. Um, you know, hist- historically that would have not yeah. ever been uh, dreamt of. And and I think the other thing that we're noticing as well is that that leisure demand is high. And also around things like very significant um, events mm-hmm. as well. So being able to deliver services for significant events when they're when they're happening as well is an, is is, an, is another challenge in a, yeah. in a very significant leisure market uh, that we, that we now deliver. Do we know why that is? Do we know why people are now starting to use rail for travel a lot more? Is it because they're not using it as much during the week, and so they've they've people are flipping it to using it at the weekend? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I don't have any empirical data, um, but sort of sitting from the sofa, I think it's exactly that kind of thing that says if 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 you are working a couple of days a week from home, yeah. I think you've probably got more sort of momentum to maybe mm-hmm. do something more at the weekend, go a bit further, um, utilise public transport um, to do that as well. Things may have changed around things like car ownership for through um, the period of COVID, particularly with a different blend of home working versus mm-hmm. leading leading to needing to commute. So I think there's a lot of yeah, little different point. factors um, at play, but it certainly is something that's both, it's both a challenge, but of course there's an opportunity mm. there as well as we strive to deliver for customers. And obviously you mentioned about the large-scale events. I mean, obviously we've had some very big events happening in London over the past few months when obviously the death of Her Majesty and, and then, you know, the funeral as well. And then in happier times, the coronation and the railway have been able to really work to pull together again to to be able to offer a service for people doing that haven't they absolutely there's been some really significant um, um events from from the passing of her majesty the queen and the operation london bridge through to golden orb uh, which was the coronation of of, of our king and, and and there's other things that are quite a bit more parochial but things like football matches mm-hmm. and depending which teams um qualify and we we had our fair share of those from the um from the east midlands east midlands <laughs> and uh, south yorkshire yeah. Uh, both of which led to some very significant, um, I say challenges, significant volumes of our mm. customers. And we work really hard to rise to that um, challenge and, and do the absolute best yeah. that we can. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, it was. There was a, there was one Saturday, I think, where there was something like three football teams when they're all, all travelling down, three supporters, all, all on East Midlands Railways. And it was like, oof, there is the challenge. <laughs> so um, so the way people, people may or may not be aware of this, but the way that... that train operators now run railways has changed hasn't it and this is this has been kind of from the old franchising agreements towards moving towards what we've got now with the national rail contracts and then 
looking ahead to what could possibly be with the next stage when Great British Railways comes on board. So what are the key differences for you as an operator between how it used to be under franchising and, and what you're faced with now? So, so on, under franchising, you would competitive, competitively uh, bid mm-hmm. franchise and you'd win a franchise yeah. and you'd have a franchise agreement typically lasted around seven years ish um, and then you'd in that bid you'll have set out your plan for a seven year period and you'd be obliged to deliver all those things you said you would deliver and then you'd run the business as you would a lot of businesses where you seek to drive up and maximize the revenue mm-hmm. you can and then um, manage your cost base as well and, and the bit in between is the margin that you would make and the, and the, and the, and the, and the profit that you would generate commercially as a private um, company. Um, since then, life's changed significantly. So we, through the period of COVID, went on to some emergency contracts yes. and now have moved on to these contracts called national rail contracts. Um, and that model is, 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 is quite different. So we're in a place where cost and revenue risk predominantly sits with the uh, Department of Transport and Government. And, and the way in which you commercially are successful is through the earning of fees and you mm-hmm. get a slim base fee and then another fee which is to do with your performance and about performance-based fees and you those measures in terms of how well we're performing performing are things like operational performance Mm -hmm. they're things like um customer performance as well and there's a lot of quantified regimes in place um that we have to perform against to 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 earn fees and they are directed at points that are really important for um customers Mm -hmm. the the other sort of quite significant change has been around the planning horizons in which Mm -hmm. we're working um, so as I just said before, when you're on a franchise agreement, that typically set out your plan for a long period of time. We're very much on a 12-month planning cycle okay. now uh, where we will receive a request for a business plan from the Department of Transport, work that up into a plan, and that's predominantly for the next um, 12 months. And then we agree that 12-month funding envelope with the DFT. So it's become much more shorter term mm-hmm. and it involves the government DFT very, very significantly. Um, in a lot of the decision making and determining what your funding envelope is going to look like. So the relationship with the client has changed materially from an old franchise agreement to an NRC. And so to that extent, have you got less freedom, do you feel? Maybe freedom's not the right word. Do you have less control over over the running of your railway? I think, I think freedom and control are probably both reasonable words um, to use. <laughs> it's it, the, the, the nature of the contracts and the nature of the, you know, the, the financial support uh, that the government through DFT are giving to the railway, um, it, it is necessary for mm-hmm. them to exercise a, a lot of control, and that is mm-hmm. quite significant control. And there are quite a number of things that we need to seek permission um, to do, which is very different to how things used mm-hmm. to historically work. And and I guess it's also important to reflect that this a lot of this stuff is quite new, so working our way through this change as well. So you can talk about the frustrations of it, but equally you can get into the place of, well, how do we just make it work? Mm-hmm. You know, we need to accept that's the way it works for now. That's yeah. the structure we've got in place. So, how do we make this work as well as we can? So, whilst it could be a bit slow or involve lots of decision making, how do you make that as slick as you possibly can? Okay. Recognizing, of course, the the need for that level of um, mm. governance and and control. And is the anticipation that that will change as and when Great British Railways comes on board? Will will the national rail contracts be novated to Great British Railways? Um, I'm not sure the precise mechanics, but if, if if we start with the principle that says a national rail contract lasts, uh, sorry, not lasts, has a 12-month um, planning cycle and horizon, and you agree this annual business plan yeah. every 12 months, what it also does afford for is change to happen. Because I think one of the criticisms from the franchising 
model was it there was a there was a plan locked in for seven years very rigid it was quite rigid it was quite difficult to change that yeah. now we're working on a 12-month planning cycle there's much more ability to enact change mm-hmm. and those changes that could be enacted are other forms of in- incentive different different regimes those kind of things i think it's much more scope to implement change mm-hmm. in contract and i think it then becomes a bit more moot about whether it's a new contract or an old contract it's, you simply can change things quite materially yeah. um throughout the term of a contract which is quite different to how it um used to be <laughs> much so yes it gives you a lot more fluidity doesn't it and and i know that some of the consultation papers out from gbrtt at the moment one of them is looking at access to the railway which at the moment again i know that kind of colleagues in freight struggle a little bit at times don't they in terms of them getting access and so i know one of the things that that's being looked at is whether it can have that flexibility with regards to the access so just because you've got for example the 12 month plan in place does that mean that you can't then have you know a freight train come through because you've got less train requirement for one day so you can have that flexibility of timetabling i mean i'll, I'll be interested to see how one could work in practice yeah, I mean, I, I think flexibility is a really interesting theme because uh, back to the point about dealing with significant events, you know, ha- having the ability to run more capacity sometimes and less on other times yeah. is, I, I think there's a place for it, but that's quite different to how we've, we're used to operating where you make in a plan uh, yeah. usually at least sort of six months ahead in terms of your timetable. Hmm. Um, and there is that, you know, there's, there's a need for more flexibility and it's you know through through a guiding mind you could you, you, you could see how there's the ability to join that together um a bit more uh but of course you know in terms of as i look forward doing things like bringing cost and revenue closer together mm-hmm. um incentivizing things like revenue growth i think are really important themes to move forward with um so we get back to you know a, a bit closer to the commercial model that existed before but of course, being cognizant where risk sits um, within yeah. that kind of um, that kind of model. Yeah, definitely. And how how do you how do you see the the role of things like AI helping with with that? I'm I'm preparing to record a podcast with somebody else where we're looking at the use of AI and rail, and I'd be really interested from your point of view um, how it fits with what you're doing at the moment, if at all. Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting question. That that does seem quite. Um, advanced mm-hmm. so um, I, um, as, 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 as I as I talk I'm thinking of our fleet mm-hmm. um, from the late 80s um, and <laughs> some of the more modern ones being early 2000s at present and and in some ways we're not we're not very data rich mm-hmm. um, we don't have you know, huge volumes of modern systems mm-hmm. um, that said though we're on a real journey of um, modernization big transformation with new fleets coming and investment in fleet in terms of um, refurbishments and 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 and, and I think through through that and getting more data rich that there is scope to to to, to use technology um more mm-hmm. um and that and, and i think that's in lots of different lots of different places mm-hmm. um but it but in doing that sort of starting on that journey in a kind of controlled and rigorous way so that whilst we move on to that space we're also cognizant of cyber yeah, um, yeah. because because we know you know that there's you know, significant cyber risk um mm-hmm. and that could be from you know, taking out ticket vending machines through to much more significant things that could affect the safety of the railway as well so it's a kind of a we're, we're on that journey or transition when it comes to um technology but i think there's quite a lot of scope um as as, as we look forward to u- utilize that to help you know challenge some of these challenges we've got around you know efficiency of the railway for instance 
Absolutely. And I think it's it's kind of one of those areas that you look at and say, oh, we, we, you know, we're talking straight away about autonomous mm. vehicles. And, and I don't think we're there. <laughs> you know, definitely not when it comes to our passenger trains. I would I would imagine that we might have a few issues on various fronts if we uh, if we entered into those realms of discussions. But but as you say, when we talk about the planning side of things, utilising that data in terms of passenger footfall and things to kind of go, well, actually, we don't need to run that train. You know, we can we can condense the timetable slightly this afternoon and having it a lot more agile. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Because because we have got very rigorous processes mm. um, and 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 systems that have been established for a long period of times, and, that, and th- those things are there for a lot of good. Mm. So things like being able to inform customers well in advance of yeah. what their planned journey could be to enable those booking horizons to be open, um, you know, th- those kind of things are really, you know, are really crucial. So I, I don't think we're quite ready yet for Chat GPT to be doing train planning. I hope um, not. <laughs> but but but, e- but equally, if you look at the advances there in terms of technology to compared to some of the systems we use, it's it, it's it's got a, it, it does pose the pose the question. Sorry about you know what is the art of the possible and how how can you to, to um seek to modernize and again i think that's really interesting because you know as you say we we do have some rolling stock out there which is quite old um you know has got some it's got some years behind it so um where do we get to when we look towards what there is in the future and what do you think passengers are expecting from trains in the future um so as I think as as we look forward, as we as we get more data rich, that's certainly going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so so traditionally, passengers want um, reliable trains. Yeah. Um, they want value for money as well. Those are sort of real high priorities mm-hmm. um, for customers. And more data and better technology is going to help those things because that should help drive those outcomes of more reliable trains. Yeah. And also enable us to um, you know, become more efficient and provide greater value for money. But I think customers really want things more like flexibility now. So the ability to be more flexible around travel arrangements, simplicity. Um, so I think it's well well versed in terms of some of the complications of ticket buying um, and you know the range of tickets that are available. Yeah. Um, so things like simplification of that are going to be really important. But then also providing a customer experience mm-hmm. uh, that, that our customers want to need because the, the nature of journey purpose has changed. Yeah. Um, when we think about more agile working, it may be that actually working on the train is is more important because you're not necessarily adopting the same hours as you might have mm-hmm. done traditionally in a commute and working in an in, mm-hmm. in an office. So I think technology has got a really significant role mm-hmm. um, to play in delivering those better outcomes yeah. for customers. And it's interesting going back to us talking about the national rail contracts. There is a real focus there, isn't there, on that kind of customer experience side of things, right from the stations through to being on the trains themselves isn't it it's, it's a lot more about that what is what is that experience going to be like absolutely i mean we are we are very driven um to focus on customers and through performance mm. regimes deliver better outcomes for customers mm. and that's across across all of those um touch points yeah. for customers from escalators and lifts through to toilets on trains mm-hmm. through to the speed at which we you'll get a response on a social media channel uh, they, they, there's a lot of different um, criteria and uh, KPIs that we're, we're now measured um, on by the um, by, by, by the DFT, but they absolutely do focus on things that are important um, to customers. Is there a KPI over social media? Uh, so, so we do get monitored um, on the on the speed at which you respond um, to messages. 
Um, and it's, it's 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 one of those. It's not not one of those that's permanently measured. Uh, I just but, thought everybody he, was brilliant at it. But he, but he got te- it gets tested. So occasionally, particularly in around disruption, it, there, there'll be a ping that goes to it right. to see what our response rate looks like. And there's there's some pass fail criteria um, associated with that. Um, I think the challenge with all of those things, though, is the more complicated you make regimes, mm-hmm. uh, it does make it a bit more challenging in terms of where do you focus your management effort, yeah. and also making sure you don't lead to perverse outcomes through through those regimes as well. So I think there's a there's some positive in here about the customer focus it um it provides, but my caution with some of these things is that they don't get overworked. Yeah, they don't spend as much time worrying about the regime as you do truly worrying about customers. About the customers, yes, it's it's it's. You know, you see that in various sectors, don't you? That it's more about the league tables than it is about the people that they're serving. And uh, yes, we can we cannot detract against that. And it's and it's interesting when you talk about the client experience. And I just you know talking about people work differently. I mean, I use I use rail for work a lot because of course I should. Um, but we we as a family definitely use it more um, for leisure time, and that's because it's part of the journey it's part of the experience to wherever it is that we're going to you know as a family we can all sit together hopefully we can you know have a table do some coloring we can play some games whatever it is rather than you know let's all pack into a car and have the little one in the back and us in the front so I think um I think yes that focus about the the whole customer experience is what's what people are going to be looking for especially as we move forward to a point where less isn't it less 17 year olds are now taking their driving test less um, people yeah. are, are looking to that you know they are looking at public transport as being the way that they are going to get around everywhere correct i mean you know if you if, if you if, if, if you look at that um sustainability mm. agenda as as we get medium term we've we've got to focus you know shift from the economic sustainability yeah. into social and environmental sustainability and i think that's where the railway's got a huge huge um part to play and I think your, your other points well made because I think depending on which type of operator you are um, the, those, those motivations and those customer types will, will be quite different um, I mean my own business EMR is part of the Transport UK group uh, which is the recent management buyout um, of Abellio and there's a range of different types of operator with, 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 within our group and we share these kind of um, experiences so we so we can improve and develop our offerings across those those different businesses and it's definitely not a case of one size um, fits all we really need to appeal to and understand um, mm-hmm. our local markets and how those local markets are changing and in some in some places it'll be it's about the experience in other places literally about you know reliability and the speed at which I can get from A to B yes, depending on the nature of that, of that of that journey and that customer. I mean, I picked up a stat this morning um, when I was doing some some background reading and the International Transport Forum has predicted that by 2050, passenger mobility will increase by 200 to 300%. And as much as we can sit here and go, that's ages away, you do some simple maths and go, oh, it's actually not. <laughs> well, if, you, if, 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 if you look at the investment cycle in um, rail, it's decisions now that will be acting yes. um, that, 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 that time horizon. Mm. Um, and that's where you know, another important part of the future is how we move away from that 12-month planning cycle into one that's much, much yeah. Um, longer term when we start setting the conditions uh, for success um, right now for the future. So really, really interesting times in terms of how you balance the the, the, the here and now um, yeah. with the with setting things up for, for the future. Well, because that, that stat actually works quite well with one that I heard the other day about, you know, HS2 is being built for people who are currently 
eight, that age may have shifted depending on when this is published. But, you know, we're actually building a railway for people who are currently eight years old. Um, and, and that's the thing, isn't it, when it comes to the railway, the capital investment that's required for things that might not come to fruition for many years. Um, it's that paying forward, isn't it? It's uh, we need to do this so that we can get the railway that we want in the future. Correct. And, and that requires real vision. Uh, it, require, it requires really good um, long term plans mm. as well. And it takes an element of bravery um, mm. to, 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 to do that. But I think if you some of the railways we might like to compare ourselves against and sometimes you know you might hear the odd frustration about those those are railways where there's a very long-term view yeah um taken and you know really important parts of the critical national infrastructure and that's where big investments like hs2 are absolutely along those yeah same same kind of lines but they do bump into some challenges um be them political be them other well, yes, and I and I think you know as we as we said before when we started this conversation talking about COVID, I mean we can't forget that it hasn't just been COVID, has it? There's been raw material crisis. There's been a war, which is still ongoing. Um, utility crisis. I mean, you name it. We we've had everything thrown at us over the last three years or so. So it's it's not really surprising that things have um, you know. I think that's, yes, not surprising, a bit of challenge, a bit of a challenge. We, we, we sometimes talk about headwinds, don't we? If <laughs> a storm really beyond a bit, absolutely. Um, and it just is a bit about how we navigate the storm to get to the uh, get to the other side. So, what does the next twelve months look like for EMR? What big things can we expect? Is it is it about as you say, focusing on that um, sustainability side, the financial sustainability side, or are there exciting things on the horizon that you can tell us about? Well, there are some exciting things on the horizon. So, um, East Midlands Railway was one of the last franchises um, to be let in the traditional times, um, mm-hmm. and with that came a significant um, investment. Yes. Um, and over the next twelve months, we're going to see some of those uh, investments crystallising. Um, so, for instance, at the moment, we're currently investing £35 million in Etches Park Depot mm-hmm. to get it ready for our new bi-mode trains mm-hmm. uh, when they come online, which will be next year, 2024, we'll, we'll see the introduction of those bi-mode trains, which That'd is going to be a very significant transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps us you know, move towards that more sustainable future because we'll be using um, electricity from the wires where there's wires and then switching to diesel engines where there, where, where there aren't wires. So that, So that kind of... That sort of change is coming. Yep. Um, we're also planning and currently developing uh, things like refurbishment specifications for our regional fleets as well, because the the cascade of units will complete over the remainder of this calendar year, mm-hmm. and then we'll be wanting to bring those um, trains nice. up to a consistent standard mm-hmm. um, and 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 make it look consistent and, and better across the piece. So things like refurbishment of other rolling stock is going to be happening as well. And then as we look further forward, I'm really keen over the next 12 months, we start developing the plans for the future. So what, mm-hmm. what should our timetable look like in, yeah. in the future um, and start putting in place, you know, the, the building blocks for that as well. So, so there is a, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of good stuff mm-hmm. that continues to be um, delivered. I mean, one of, it's one of the, the, the benefits, I guess, of the, um, you know, through the franchising system, all of those contracts were put in place uh, pre-COVID. Uh, we got in all of the private um, investment um, to deliver those projects, and those are the projects that we're on with um, delivering now, which you're going to see a very significant um, change, a change and transformation for our um, for our customers. Fantastic! It all sounds very exciting on that front, and it's and it is. Yeah, you know, I think we 
use the reference to the storm. It's something of a perfect storm at the moment in rail, isn't it? There's lots going on. It's all very exciting. There's there's new and exciting things coming online. And at the same time, we've got what's happening with Great British Railways as and when that's going to come in and, and the fact that that's hopefully going to make us all a lot slicker, a bit more collaborative and and all of that, you know, all of that new stuff that they're going to bring online as well when, when they're given the ability to do that. So... Um, I think I've just got one final question for you, which is, what do you see, if you had your crystal ball, what do you see the customer experience being like in 2050, if we use that as the benchmark? Crikey, 2050, that's, that's looking ahead quite a long way, um, mm. Michelle. Um, so I think there'll be this a, a, a continued need for flexibility, yeah. a continued need for um, simplicity. Um, but absolutely in there's got to be the, the sustainability mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. Um, so as we as we seek to get to you know carbon to reduce carbon, mm-hmm. um, we, we've we've got to be seeing that kind of transition taking place. So yeah. so so the, the days of diesel rolling stock, um, you know, th- those things have 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 got to have have got to change as we move to a more um, sustainable future. And and I think when you look at some of those points uh, you made about things like car ownership, for instance. You know, through that, if we can provide the sustainable solution, um, demand will come as part of that yeah. as well. So you could really forecast in 2050 a very busy railway, yeah. um, but one that is really helping um, solve some of the uh, challenges uh, of the future when it comes to the environment. Fantastic. I've said it before. You've just said it again for me. You know, rail is the answer to everything, really. I mean, just get everybody on a train and, and, you know, the net zero challenge has been met. That's all we need to do. We're winning. (laughs) Will, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michelle.